So for many people, they're doing their best, but this combination of trauma requires much more than anyone could have planned for. So I believe this social emotional backlash connected to COVID probably calls for us to put more time into being intentional around having the conversations about what do our students need and having those conversations with collective group. Welcome to Education Rx. The education system in the U.S. is sick and we all need to find ways to heal it. I'm Holly Bronson. I'm Shannon Donaway. Together, we have almost 50 years of experience working as professionals in a school setting. We may not have all the answers, but we're looking for people who have a piece of the solution puzzle. This is Education Rx. Hi, everybody. We are back. Today, we are talking to someone who works very closely with families. We've gotten a chance to talk to a lot of teachers who work with students and educators of teachers. But today, we got to talk to Treese Moore. Yes, and Treese works with the Family Outreach and Engagement Network up in Seattle, Washington. She is amazing and has written a book that everyone should check out, particularly educators, administrators, or teachers. It is called Unreached, What Every Educator Wants to Know About Engaging Families for Equity and Student Achievement. And I got to check out that book. I read through a good portion of it, and it is excellent. Such good ideas. Definitely. Everybody should check that out. And so we're going to have a conversation with Therese about some of the ways that families can be engaged by teachers, simple ways to really recruit families in the learning process for students, and especially how districts and schools and administrators can connect with families to hear what they need and really partner with them in the education process. Perfect. Let's see what she had to say. We are going to introduce someone that I got introduced to through my sister who lives up in Seattle, Washington, and just a super cool lady with some amazing experience who's going to talk with us today. So, Therese, I'm going to let you introduce yourself. Thank you, Holly and Shannon. I want to cover the fact that I come from a family of public school educators, mom, dad, siblings. And so I've always appreciated the positive impact education can have um, on a student, especially when educators and families work together. So for a little over 16 years, I served as the Family and Community Partnership Director in one of the most diverse districts in the country. We had over 115 languages spoken, and I just found that that was a great lesson in really understanding the dynamics of of how complicated and challenging it can be to serve a variety of families, but that it's possible to do it well when, when you have the support that you need. I'm presently finalizing my doctoral research on conceptualizing family and community partnerships from a a cultural perspective. And I'm the senior consultant for the Family Outreach and Engagement Network, where we focus on helping educators and community partners develop a culturally responsive approach to supporting student success. And Therese, you have a book that's linked to your website. Tell us the website name and then tell us the title of your book, because I was looking through and it is a really cool book. The book is called What Every Educator Wants to Know About Engaging Families for Equity and Student Achievement. And my website is also long. It is familyoutreachandengagement.com. 
Awesome. And you and I were having a conversation on the phone when we were talking about interviewing. And I was telling you that one of the things we're finding as we're speaking with families and even educators is that during COVID and even the year after we all were quarantined, a lot of districts, including colleges, continued to keep virtual learning as the go-to. And that really presented not just social emotional challenges, but overall, our educators were struggling to engage students. But I think on the family's end, we really need to look at how that was taxing and overwhelming to families. And that was something that you have a lot of ex expertise on that I would love to hear you talk about. You know, I think I can capture, you know, there are a lot of things that a variety of families might say. But if I, I capture the two most common responses that I learned from families. One was connectivity and use of the equipment, you know, the laptop and, and the uh, Wi-Fi connection and having one laptop and three children. And the second one would be the curriculum, technical jargon, and guidelines and assignments. I think sometimes educators don't necessarily know that when they're explaining to a family or a student what the assignment is, the work they have to do and how they turn it in and you know what responsiveness looks like on the student and family's end, I think educators accidentally use the same terminology that they use with each other. And so I think sometimes it's just as simple as making things clear, understanding that families might come from a different perspective in terms of their understanding of how to use technology. And then also another issue in connection with remote learning had a lot to do with how difficult it is to establish trust via remote learning and how difficult it is to, to develop the kind of connection and relationship that's necessary for there to be this back and forth that sometimes helps students learn more effectively. Well, and I think establishing relationship, especially in that year after quarantine, when those kids had never been in a classroom with that teacher, trying for that teacher to really build relationship with students had to have been challenging. But then knowing that a lot of times parents were nearby and kind of listening or observing their student try and interact. And you said something to me that I thought was really key. A lot of times those quiet students that aren't really the ones raising their hand or being loud or getting attention sometimes just hung out and they were kind of in the background and teachers were so overwhelmed with what they were doing that sometimes they had a hard time really identifying that student. And some families may have felt like their child was really being overlooked. Well, you know, yeah, I'd like to speak to that because I think there's this two-sided coin in terms of that. So typically parents aren't aware of how often their student asks questions or how often they raise their hand or don't raise their hand. And they also are not aware of the additional support that remote learning requires. And so because parents aren't necessarily aware or weren't always aware of what that should look like, what it could look like, sometimes there might be expectations that come from forgetting that if there are 30 students or 25 students and you've got this screen with just a bunch of squares, it's not always easy for a teacher to understand or to see or to catch a student, you know, asking a question or wanting to be heard. And then, of course, don't, let's not even talk about the chat box, having to monitor the chat box and look at the screen. So what I noticed was parents, or what I've learned is that families have identified a couple things. One, that teachers have a huge challenge when it comes to class size and the varying levels of participation and focus. 
when it comes to remote platforms. Also, parents have recognized that their child may or, not, may or may not have the interest or support level that they expected. So sometimes a parent says, oh, wow, I thought my student would pay more attention. Or sometimes they say, wow, I thought the teacher would be able to notice or recognize my student when they are paying attention. And so there's just this interesting dynamic that came with getting to learn and understand and see their child in that environment and also reflect on how the teacher responded or didn't respond to their child right. in that environment. Right. I wanted to ask you, Therese, because you kind of started to touch on it and it isn't officially in our questions, but I did wonder when you were talking about how difficult it was for families with like equipment and jargon and then like how the information was pushed out. So a lot of districts, and I know this was true in the last district I was in and in the district I'm in now, they have multiple platforms that teachers put assignments. And so if you have a kid in middle school and you have a kid in high school and maybe one in elementary, it might be different for each of them. And even though it's nice to have a lot of options with technology that really are, I don't know, I guess, packaged in such a way that they're real specific to the needs, sometimes it's hard for families that they have to navigate so many different systems. And I wish that districts and, and school systems could really fine tune that and make one platform like from their website that it was just one little click and it took them to one place where they could access everything easily. Because I know as a parent, that would be overwhelming to me and I'm pretty tech savvy. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I think if a parent has a child in a variety, has children in different grade levels, it can be really complicated. And one of the solutions, if the system can't be simplified for every grade level, I would imagine that districts want to consider having a 30 second or 60 second video explainer that says, hey, if your child is in elementary, if your child's in middle, if your child's in high school, take a look at this. And it explains how you sign up or how you go through it. It has to be really short, but you know, I've seen districts spit out lots of information via email, auto robocalls on the website in a variety of ways. And so I would, I would imagine that if you have a complex system and it varies in different grade levels that you wanna make sure you have an opportunity for parents to get information real easy about how, how to address that, how to learn how to use it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that was really a headache, especially when we first went into quarantine because teachers didn't even know how to do some of this stuff. And so they didn't have the ability to share. But now that we know we need to be prepared, you never know, hopefully we'll all be thinking as educators, especially in a public education system, that we've got all kinds of levels of tech familiarity, <laughs> got all levels of how much access they have with Wi-Fi and some of those things and really streamline that so that it's easier for students and for their families, for sure, because I think that's very overwhelming. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I do remember, I was actually still in the district when I was thinking about how difficult it must be for a teacher to have to do something right away. And it's her turn with the tech support people the week after she has to do it. <laughs> of course, <laughs> after the fact. Right. <laughs> Yeah, I just remember finding out about all being bombarded with all these different options and then like trying all of them to find one that fit with each student or each family. So it was super tricky. You know, I would also like to mention and, and you know, the technical piece 
can be really daunting. But one of the things that I really enjoy focusing on when I work with districts, leaders, principals, community-based organizations, and, and even parents, I like to pay attention to the fact that ultimately all of us are trying to do our best and we go with what we know. And unless and until we have an opportunity to collaborate or to collectively devise some solutions, we're going to be going in separate directions. And sometimes what happens is when people think about partnering with families, the direction they go in is what they know. And sometimes they forget about bringing the family along when they create these objectives for their students and how they're going to help their students succeed. And so I, much of the work that I do has to do with Dr. Karen Mapp's dual capacity framework, which really talks about process conditions and, and the things that we need to consider that teachers want to do and families want to do and how we bring those things together. I also think the research around Zaretta Hammond's book, Culturally Responsive Teaching and the Brain, is really imperative for, for teachers who want to not just focus on, you know, it doesn't have a lot to do with engagement, engaging families, but her book talks a lot about the brain, the, the, the cultural dynamics of what students and families bring to the learning process. And I think Dr. Geneva Gay's uh, work, culturally responsive and, and multicultural work, really, really informs, at least it informed my book, but it also informs educators that feel like, you know what, I just want to engage students effectively. You know, I can't always do the family engagement thing, and I don't really know how or have opportunity to reach into this family outreach and engagement arena, but I certainly would like to engage my students more effectively. So I always recommend people think about and, and read Dr. Zaretta Hammond's book and Dr. Geneva Gay's research. That's awesome. Yeah, that's really interesting. Can you share a little bit about how you found this focus on engaging students and supporting student achievement and kind of why it's so important to you? Ooh, yes, thank you. Um, that's a great question. I have a tremendous level of respect for parents and their love and dedication for their children. And I noticed there were a lot of negative assumptions being made about families of color in particular before I started this work and, and as I got deeper into this work. And a lot of the assumptions were because parents weren't showing up for the events and activities, the structured school designated events. I also noticed that schools were not recognizing how the partnership options and opportunities they offered families weren't very respectful or considerate of the realities that our families of color face on a daily basis. So this helped me realize that I wanted to become part of the solution in a way that helped bridge the family school partnership gap. And we know that teachers don't always get an opportunity to learn in their Department of Education program or in their districts what some of the practices are that would be effective in promoting this collaborative approach to helping students succeed. So I really got into the work in part because, you know, most of my family are, are educators, but also because I could see a big gap between what teachers knew about engaging and reaching families to support student success and what college of education programs and districts were doing. There was, there was this vacuum. I noticed there's just this gap. Well, and I think, I don't know, and you may be aware of this, but I know in Colorado and in New Mexico, and this is a trend nationally, that we're moving away from response to intervention into multi-layer, multi-tier levels of support, the MLSS system. And I know in New Mexico, one of the things they cover within that is at that layer one, when they're looking at globally, all students in general education, including students with IEPs, they're asking teachers to be culturally and linguistically responsive. But I think for teachers, 
they're like, what does that mean? <laughs> and I think that is a legitimate question we need to hone in on. What does that mean? And again, I would, yes, I agree. And again, I would recommend every teacher read the book, Culturally Responsive Teaching and the Brain by Zaretta Hammond. That's a good place to start, both when it comes to learning differences and, and teaching approaches. And what would be, I don't know, two or three things that you could tell teachers would help them to be responsive with families, no matter the culture, you know, whether they're Asian or African-American, but just a couple things that you have found are good tips for teachers to use. Oh, that's a nice question. It, it, it sounds like a lot to ask, but the process that I was able to create based on my research and reading and, and, and 17 years of, or more years of experience is ultimately what all of us want in a relationship with anyone on any level in, in any situation. So, but what I've done is I've tried to simplify it by having these four equity partnership recommendations. And then around that, what we notice is when we're talking about family engagement, in order to accomplish the four equity partnership recommendations, and I'll, and I'll share what they are, there are five authentic leadership practices that you want to consider doing. And so sometimes it's the teacher, sometimes it's the family liaison, sometimes it's the principal, but collectively there are a variety of school staff members that can be a part of helping these things happen. So first of all, you want to earn trust early. So you don't want to wait till there's a problem. You don't want to wait until after you notice that something's missing or something's not happening. So earning trust early means getting to know the family or the student or something that can help you develop trust authentically, genuinely early at the beginning of the school year, not at the end of the school year. When the student changes the grade level or at any point that you can initiate opportunities to learn more about the family and the student and earn trust. That's really important. The other thing would be to share responsibility intentionally. So when I say share responsibility intentionally, typically our teachers get excited because they're not used to a family engagement and outreach person saying share responsibility. Sometimes they believe that someone in my role would say, oh, do this for families and, 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 and do this for families and do this. No, I understand that it's, it, it's, it's a shared responsibility. So in order to share the responsibility, you have to balance your expectations transparently. So how do you do that? In order to share responsibility, you have to actually talk to parents and give parents an opportunity to let you know, hey, these are some things that I'm doing for my child, or these are some things that I can do or will do. And then the teacher shares what they're doing. And if you're transparent, then you can balance it. So it's not a parent thinking, call me every morning or email me twice a week. If you balance the expectations and you're transparent, then the shared responsibility is a lot easier to uh, move forward with. And then lastly, I found that when you measure efforts meaningfully, literally just that just means don't just think that the partnership happens effectively because the district or the school says, this is what we need parents to do. Ask parents what their hopes and dreams are for their children. Ask them what's important about their culture that they'd like you to know and incorporate those into the, the discussions that you have about the partnership. Oh, I love that. I love that. Those are well, I didn't go into the five authentic leadership practices because that would get a little too wordy and it would make it sound real jargony. So I'm not really into jargon, but I would recommend anyone who's interested to take a look at my website and there are free documents that they can download. Those are really good tips though for teachers. I mean, that's easy. Those are easy to implement. So thank you. I hope so. And I think they work for service providers. So I'm an occupational therapist in a school setting and Shannon is a speech therapist in a school setting. And I think it's true for us as well. We could use these as well. And because we're dealing with a lot of students who 
have unique needs. A lot of times our level of interaction with families might be different than some general education teachers because we have to communicate with them just the necessity of what we're doing. But I think it is an extra level of effort on the teacher's part, but the payoff is huge. Yes. You know? Well, and it's, it's a front load scenario because the more you start off doing, according to some of the things I suggested, the less you'll have to do in the middle and the end of the year. And we know that nationally, we're looking at students in elementary that are anywhere from second grade to fifth grade. And I have a good friend who's in Houston and uh, her boys are kind of in this category. During COVID, they were in kinder first grade and it was so hard to use virtual learning for those age groups and preschool students and students with significant needs. But now they're in school and they're struggling with some simple things like you know, we have friends that whose kids aren't reading well or our spelling is really hard because they just didn't have good exposure to that. And so thinking about how important it is to develop that relationship with family because we need them and they need us to figure out how to support building these skills in the home environment because it's just not enough time in the day to do it at school. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, I don't even think we've, had enough opportunity to think about what are some simple things that we can share with families that they could do at home that don't require a lot of education or a lot of time? What are some of the simple things that we can share with them and how and when are we going to do that? You know, I would recommend that um, school breaks, during school breaks, that teams create not just packets, but create a simplified routine around making sure families get maybe three or four ideas on what they can do over the break. It could be Christmas, winter break. It could be over the summer break. It could be, you know, all the holidays that exist where students are at home for a week or two weeks. Having a consistent plan of identifying what you would like parents to know and possibly do and, and what they might need in order to do that during the break, no matter what grade level it is. Maybe have grade level teams work together to say, man, it would be nice if our if our team could work on some things to share with parents that they can do over the break for first graders, right. for second graders, for fifth graders. Right. That's a really great idea. And I think that would be time well spent for teachers. They'd, yeah. The kids would come back more engaged and just not have lost anything. Sometimes we think about, oh, parents don't have time or parents are so busy or, oh, that's too complicated. I think we should leave it up to the parents to make that decision. If we make it possible for them to have maybe a list, especially in their own language, but if we have a list or we have a resource that they can use when they're going grocery shopping or when they are at home, when they're about to put their kids in bed, there are just certain practices that teachers are aware of that aren't shared with families because the assumption is that, oh, maybe it's too complicated or maybe they won't do it. I, I have noticed and seen families be really, really appreciative of small, quick tips that they can use that are grade level appropriate for their children throughout the day or throughout the week or during the weekend. And what you just said about like making a list or going to the grocery store. I mean, think about we need writing to make our grocery list and having your student get a piece of paper and go into the pantry and find the, the items that you get regularly and write it down, practice 
you know, their handwriting and spelling or having them do math when they go to buy a meal at the, you know, Wendy's or whatever. Like there's so many ways that we can do practical things. And as we bring those activities into a real setting, they have so much more value for the student because they see, oh, mom and dad does do this same thing all the time. Yes. I need to be able to do it too. Yes. And I mean, whether it's giving them a chore list that they have to read or, you know, having them tell you what time it is, like all those little things are so meaningful and help. Yes. And I know some parents who um, may not have necessarily had a teacher tell them to do this, but I've had lots of parents tell me that, you know, when they see signs, when they're driving, they point to the sign and they have their child, they tell their child what that sign says. I've seen, you know, there are a variety and, you know, encouraging parents to go to the museums or coming up with ways to work with community partners to provide tickets and opportunities for students to go to activities. Those, those are the kind of things that I've seen community partners work well with, with schools to help ensure that parents have opportunities to interact in ways that promote educational partnerships in the home, outside the home, in the community. And those real world things. Yeah. And I have a whole bunch of things popping up in my head right now that I'm going to implement. <laughs> You're making me think. Oh, I'm so glad. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about some of the things that you were hearing from teachers and educators as we were coming back from COVID and they were really trying to address makeup learning with students. Did you hear from any teachers that they were engaging families or from families that maybe they didn't know what teachers were doing to help and they were concerned? You know, I think it just depends on the, of course, as I said, earn trust early. The trust level that families have with the school team, educators, really determined whether or not there was this ongoing partnership before, during, and after the COVID experiences. So I would imagine that the schools that had the most success with catching up, helping students catch up with learning or getting them up to speed or or improving their circumstances around learning loss would be the schools, and this is what I've noticed, are the schools that provided, again, provided opportunities either through community partners or through communication venues where they were keeping in touch with parents about what was important for their student to know and learn, ways to help their student, opportunities in the community or at the school that may exist to pick up materials or to be connected to tutoring and, and additional learning opportunities beyond just the remote learning path. Have you found in your research that there are specific ways that families felt more responsive to with that communication? Do they prefer a voice message? Do they prefer an email? Do they like a, a handout to be sent home? You know, that's interesting. I have read, read quite a bit of research that talks about texting, text messages, uh, being pretty successful in having that ongoing connection with families and, and schools. So the research does tell us that texting has been pretty effective. My informal experience has been phone calls. You know, a lot of the family liaisons that I, that I train and the family engagement directors and all of those roles where they're really focused on what do we do? How can we simplify, make it easier for schools to have this, this process of connecting with families? So what they've what I've learned beyond the text messaging research is families still like phone calls. And I've learned that emails are pretty effective. Now, those are also time consuming. And so the, the 
solution has been those districts or schools that actually pay for teachers time so that they can have that time to make calls to parents and to connect with the parent about what the student might be missing or what they might need to know. Those ideas have been pretty successful, giving the teacher time, paying the teacher to put time into contacting the parent directly about what that student on her list who might be behind or who might need extra support, what that student might need to work on and uh, sharing that with the parent via phone. But that I was thinking like that brings up a whole nother issue, right? The districts that maybe don't provide the time for teachers to have just even a block, a small block of time. I feel like some of our teachers don't get that. Yeah. And so then that is a whole trickle effect, right? Yeah. Well, I, you're, you're exactly right. And I've noticed two things. Now, of course, I'm, I'm in the Northwest, but I, I work really closely with consultants and leaders that are on the East Coast as well. And this is what I'm seeing. I'm seeing more positions like family liaisons on the school level, equity and family engagement directors on the district level. And those are great positions. In fact, that was was what I did for 17 years. I trained family liaisons and I had a team of 23 that were in the school building and I was on the direct district level. Now that, you know, even though there's funding, more funding now than ever for similar roles, what I noticed is when a district doesn't have those roles, if they also do not have funds to pay for teachers to do that, then ultimately they, they're going to have a variety of problems and concerns and repeat the, the same patterns of student attendance and uh, questions about how to address the prison to school pipe, the school to prison pipeline. All of those things can be discussed and addressed when you actually put funding into either positions that help you work with families mm-hmm. to learn from them and allow your staff to, to understand and then, or let the teachers learn directly by calling the parents. You know, it would be great if you could do all of it, but with funding limitations, you definitely can't afford not to do either. Right. Otherwise you just continue this mode of, oh, we don't understand families. We don't know families. Families aren't partnering with us. We're not partnering with families. Oh, and somehow uh, we still have an achievement gap or our students aren't doing well. I wonder why. And a lot of people wonder why when they fail to consider what the research says about family partnerships and how effective they are at helping our students, student outcomes improve. And I agree. I mean, I am seeing more of those positions lately, definitely in, in my schools anyways. I think as a parent, I know when my youngest, since he's the most recent image in my head of school and learning, he had a couple teachers when he was struggling that I was reaching out to and I worked in their school <laughs> and trying to get feedback from them about what's going on and where's the breakdown and just no response from them by email or if I left messages and I would have to go into the school on the days I worked there and try and track them down. And that left me with a feeling of, I don't like this teacher. They're not really trying. They're not really helping my student. They don't get it. I'm asking for help. They're not responding to me. And I I think that we all, when we as parents get that sort of chip on our shoulder because we're frustrated and we're trying and I get it, teachers are busy, but like if I send you an email and it takes you a week to answer, like that feels really not like a good move because it's urgent to me, right? Like when my kid's failing, it's urgent or my kid's struggling, it's urgent. And so trying to find that happy medium, because when I come home and I have a bad attitude about this teacher and I'm intentionally trying to be positive with my child about, 
I know it's a hard class. You can do it. This teacher is really going to help you. And yes. it's hard for me to have that attitude when I feel like they're blowing us off. And I know I'm not the only parent who's experienced that. No, I agree with you, Holly. And that according to research, that's typically an experience that is common for many of our families of color. That's unfortunate. And I think we have so many cultures across our country, people who have come into our country because our country was designed to be a place for everyone, where everyone could be treated with respect. And not having that and not being equitable with that is, I mean, we can do so much better. We can just do so much better. Yeah. Well, and you know, another thing that comes to mind in agreement with what you were saying, sometimes our families who are Black, Indigenous, people of color, we can be so used to the disregard, the disrespect, the no phone call back or no email response, that it becomes this norm that is either expected or that's reinforced. And unfortunately, you know, I, I don't know the solution to that. I, the only thing I can imagine is as things change and as, as the system improves in its response to our families of color, then possibly there will be more confidence in the, the system and how the system responds to families and the partnership of families who are not you know, privileged or, or uh, the typical families who are in, in the organization that helps them represent their children all the time. Sometimes families can't be a part of the most privileged group conversations and they just get left out and become used to that and then either stop trying or try and, and just get really exhausted. One of the questions that I really, you know, I thought long and hard about that you, that oh. you uh, asked, and I'd really love to talk about the social emotional backlash that you, that you brought up in, in our previous conversation. So I think because of COVID, our educators, our students and our families have suffered more loss, more change and uncertainty than any time I can recall. And I'm over 50. Yeah. And as a result, they're experiencing higher levels of fatigue, anxiety, and fear than usual. So this combination of circumstances has unfortunately caused more challenges and concerns than many of us have ever expected or could have ever been trained to address. Absolutely. So for many people, they're doing their best, but this combination of trauma requires much more than anyone could have planned for. So I believe this social emotional backlash connected to COVID probably calls for us to put more time into being intentional around having the conversations about what do our students need and having those conversations with collective group yes. beyond just teachers sitting and having that conversation, families sitting with each other and having that conversation, principals having that conversation with principals. You know, I believe that there should be a diverse group of stakeholders consistently meeting to talk about what does it look like in your chair? What does it look like in your seat? How are things going? And, and what do we need? What's working and what's not working? You know, and it could be something as simple as start, stop, and continue. Just brief conversations about how is this working? What are we missing? What's going well? And it doesn't have to, I know back when I was on the district level, we had quarterly meetings that were called key communicator meetings. And they included top level, a few top level district people who can make decisions, parents, students, and educators. So it wasn't ever this big, huge community thing of hundred people. It was always just a small group of interested people. And it was a different group every quarter, but there were these, these voices that represented a variety of families from different cultural backgrounds, variety of students, um, different age groups, and a variety of leaders that worked in the district. And there were just these 90-minute conversations about how is it working? What are we doing? What do we need? And with the diverse positions and roles that were a part of the conversations, we were able to say, oh, okay, this isn't working. We thought this was working. This isn't. Or this is working. Let's make sure that we apply this someplace else. Absolutely. 
And let me just say for people listening, there is no way you're over 50. You look fabulous. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you Thank have you. aged great. <laughs> I have. I always have to say over 50 because sometimes people, they may not always believe that I know enough or have enough experience right? To be a mentor as opposed to be mentored. Well, and one of the best things about when we work with, and a lot of times I'll um, do field work with you know, occupational therapists that are coming into the field and they need some time in the specific location in schools. And I love to do that because they're young and fresh and they think they're going to fix everything. And you know what? I love that. Even though I've been around, you know, 23 years in my field, it's good to get that contagious, uplifting attitude of like, everything is possible, that hopefulness. And I think as a nation, we're in this funky place coming out of COVID that we're just so busy trying to figure it out and trying to manage how traumatic and stressful and insane it was that we've lost some of that hope. And I think the conversations you're talking about with administrators and educators at every level, students, families, that can help us get hopeful again because we can be hopeful. And there are things that we can do even little things, even having those conversations, even individual teachers really making an intentional effort to reach out to families and build those relationships. Those little things add up yes. and make us be hopeful again. And one of the things we keep reiterating in every episode is that education and teaching is one of the most important jobs in the world because these little people are gonna grow up and be the people leading, right? Right. And, and we have to develop them and give them the skills that they need on every level, including emotionally and how they manage those emotions. What can we do? What can we start? What can we stop? What can we keep in the mix? Those are simple things that anybody, anybody can jump in and help with. Yes. Oh, I really liked your suggestion about how to do meetings with families and teachers. I feel like when, when we, our district, when we do do those, it turns into maybe not the most effective meeting sometimes, but the way you labeled it by suggesting come in and, and share what does your student or your child need. And everybody talks about it in that sort of sense, rather than this is what's not good and, and sort of complaining about things. And I feel like if it were presented that way, you'd have so many more families engaged and teachers. And I, yes, and I'd especially recommend that you take the meetings to the community. Yeah. So and instead of saying, here's our, our space, come to us, go to the community organizations where the, the organizations that reflect the, the family's cultural values and are located in the community. Take the meetings there as opposed to having all the meetings be at your board meeting location or your district location. Give us some examples of those places. So I would imagine that you really want to be careful to know what are the organizations that your families trust. So I could rattle off a list of organizations, but I, it would be inaccurate because some organizations are in the community and families don't necessarily trust the practices and the approach that those organizations. So you really have to make it specific to the local context and interest of the families. But for example, maybe I could say maybe apartment cabanas. So sometimes oh, yeah. uh, apartment areas have spaces where families can meet and connect. And if teachers and principals or district soups meet at that place and have that be the location, all the family has to do is go into their neighborhood and 
attend the meeting. Sometimes there are the why, or there are tutoring programs. There, there, there are a variety of in the community organizations where the leaders and the board members reflect the student population. And typically, if the community is represented by an organization that knows them, where the leaders have been there and they know them and they've earned trust, those will be the locations where families would say, okay, I can go to that meeting. I'll go to a meeting that's housed in that location. Yeah, I would even think like public library would be, at least it's not a school location. Or like you said, we have a a community rec center here in Durango. And that would be a place that I feel like would be more welcoming. Yes. Other than the boardroom. Exactly. That makes a lot of sense. One thing I would like to ask you, so our podcast is under the umbrella of our bigger business, which is Equitable Education Now. And the goal of that is to find ways to really start building better equity in education for people of different skill levels, different races, different cultures, different socioeconomic, all of those things. Can you give us just a couple things that you feel like are really key components for us to move toward more equitable practices in schools? I know that's a big question. Just a couple things, and then we need to reiterate the name of your book because it really has a lot of this good information in it. Thank you. Yeah, I think this is what I noticed doesn't happen a lot. So maybe let me say it in the affirmative. If this happened more often, one is when we want to communicate with families, instead of going with our typical communications department practices, actually stop and ask families who typically aren't reached, families who have not been represented very often on the leadership levels. Okay. Ask families, what does effective communication look like according to you? So the question you asked me earlier, flyers, text messages, email, phone calls, what works best for you? And so ultimately what I know is sometimes we've got great communications department teams and they go on what they were taught in in their program or in college. And it doesn't always reflect what the community, what the local community has identified as effective communication. So in answering your question, I would specifically say, have your communications team go out and find out and ask families, What's an effective communication approach according to you as a family that we've not often reached effectively? Another thing I would say is asking families or finding out what's important about your culture that we're missing, that you would like us to know. And then I know we have people who say, oh man, 115 languages, we can't know all languages. We can't know all cultures. We can't learn about. No, you can't, but you can ask and find out because sometimes there's a lot that families have in in common regardless of their language. Mm -hmm. Another thing is, facilitate collaborative meetings and not just, okay, we're collaborating on my terms, on our terms, on your terms, on the district's terms. Facilitate meetings that are co-led. So if you want to promote equity, don't just say, we went into the neighborhood and we're, we're listening. Actually engage leaders to be part of the process of you presenting the meeting and asking the questions. So co-facilitate, maybe a teacher and a parent maybe a principal and a parent, co-facilitate so that there's the shared leadership and the shared responsibility for putting the meeting on and, and reflecting what really matters. So if you have a principal leading the meeting, then families will typically think, okay, this is the leader of the school. They want to know certain things. But if you have a principal and a parent co-leading the meeting, families are more likely to say, oh, you know what? They're interested in, in our voice. And then another thing I'd say is when you think about equity, think about celebrating small wins, looking for ways to honor, acknowledge, 
and promote these cultural assets and norms that you learn about and then celebrate them. And I don't just mean a multicultural night. And I've got no problem with multicultural night where you celebrate food and clothing. But I mean, be more intentional and consistent with having a platform that says, we're going to celebrate. We're going to celebrate what we've learned about our community, what we've learned about our families. We're going to celebrate small wins in terms of identifying the things that we have in common and growing closer in spite of the things that make us different. Thank you so much for giving us so much of your time today. You just are a wealth of knowledge. Tell us again the title of your book. What Every Educator Wants to Know About Engaging Families for Equity and Student Achievement. And educators out there, whether you're an administrator or a teacher or a librarian or a special service provider, go to her website, which is family outreach and engagement.com. Yes. And you will see her book right there and click on it. And it is so full of good ideas. And it's like interactive because there's sections that you can fill in to really kind of process this information. It's fabulous. I got a lot out of it. I didn't even get through the whole thing yet, but it was really, really great. And it's an awesome place to go to, to kind of springboard into these concepts and really gain some of that insight that you share. And I just learned a lot from you from our further our conversation earlier, but then today, thank you so much. Thank you. I'm definitely going to use some of these strategies. What I love about some of the information that Therese gave us is that it is so simple that anyone can put that into practice, but she came up with some very good ideas like how educators could meet families to discuss things in non-school settings sort of level that playing field. Some of those ideas are wonderful and I think really help create a more inclusive feel with families and education. I agree. I took some notes and I will definitely use some of those tools. And her ideas about how we can connect with families, even just texting or making phone calls was awesome. It's really important to keep in touch with families. And I think that families are a huge part of the education process. And post-COVID, I think a lot of families have really struggled to get their students re-engaged. And so this is the perfect time to talk about how as educators, we can really connect with families and help them know how important they are. Yeah, and it's really good to develop those relationships ahead of time before things happen. If something were to happen again, even with an individual student being out or whatever. Yeah. It's good to have good relationships. It seems like the common theme with everything, whether it's between teachers and students, students and students, administrators and teachers, teachers and families, relationship is the key here that we keep hearing over and over. That's true. We've had a lot of our interviews talk about building relationships. I think after being so isolated during COVID, it's something that we can all connect to. We don't want to be isolated anymore. We want to be connected. Yep. Well, and next week, we're going to go into our favorite area, which is special education. <laughs> that's where that's our sweet spot because we both work in special education for many, many years and love this population. Yes, I, special education is definitely our passion. And I think it's one of those populations that it was very inequitable during COVID because so many of those students don't have the ability to get into an online course with a teacher or manipulate the things that it takes to get onto the screen and work with the teacher. And so it was really hard for a lot of those kids to make any progress or get what they needed during that time. Yeah, I think we're going to have some really great 
conversations with our next couple interviews. Yes. So everybody out there, we want to tell you that together together, we we can can do better. better. All right, you guys get back here next week. You do not want to miss what we're going to talk about. Bye.